Hey there, skips and skipperettes from all across the vast electronic wastelands that are known only as Internet Land. Welcome back to Tales from the Jungle Cruise. So this episode is a special one for a lot of reasons. Now, I spend a lot of time lining up interviews, you know, doing research, updating our Facebook page, driving, taping, editing, all the fun stuff that's really become part of this whole process. Now, during this whole time, when I started three years ago and I just basically interviewed my friends that I worked with, I had found some skips from the 90s. I kind of figured that might be it, but the next year, I found some skips from the 80s and the next year, the 70s. And last year, I interviewed Don Bobbs, who started in 1968. As the years go on and the number of people who worked at the resort in the beginning ages, they kind of, you know, were getting older, and I didn't expect to find a lot of skippers who worked in the 1950s. I always held out hope, but... So basically, we have a very complicated story that's worthy of a Nora Ephron screenplay. Yeah, Yeah, I went there. So what? Anyway... Twist turns emails, detective work, and at the end of it, I had discovered Mr. Warren Asa. Warren only worked half a year or so at Disneyland, but he was a Jungle Cruise skipper whose first day at Disneyland was July 17, 1955. Yep, day one. There really is no way for us to go any further back in time than this, and it was an incredible pleasure to chat with him. Warren is 88 years old, but he has the heart of a true skipper beating in that chest. His sense of humor and wit are evident, and he took us back to his memories of his time at the beginning of Disneyland. Now, there were a lot of interesting things here, but things kind of blew away a lot of preconceived notions that I had about the early days of the jungle, and things we've been told for years that may not have been exactly true. We also see uh, that a lot of his feelings about working there, well, as I've said before, everything old is new again. A lot of these stories are going to sound familiar to you, whether you worked in the 70s, 90s, or today. So there are a couple of notes that don't really fit into the episode, so I'll uh, put them here. Now, I know that Jungle, when it started, was a C-ticket attraction because there weren't D-tickets or E-tickets in 55. In 56, it became a D-ticket ride. And then in 1959, when they introduced the E-ticket, all of the D-ticket rides became E. So it's okay that he said it was an E-ticket ride. No correcting him. In all of our hearts, Jungle will always be an E-ticket ride. He's one of the first skippers. Give him a break. Uh, We also talk a little bit about the place where I found him, but as I was editing, I realized that it wasn't incredibly clear. So toward the end of the episode, we were actually talking about Rubel Castle in Glendora. As soon as you're done here, go find the YouTube episode of Huell Hauser visiting there. It's a fun little clip. Thanks also so much to Warren's daughter, Bonnie, for helping us make this possible. And as we prepare to go back in time 60 years... I am never more proud to have said Kungaloosh, all my fellow listeners. It's time to say hello to Skipper Warren Asa, Season 4, Episode 15's guest, as we meet one of the first around the river.
fun and games. We got everything you oh, want. What's going on? So, um. My dad still runs the jungle boat because when my daughter walks out of this house, he says, "Watch out for Indians," you know, and "Watch out for this." Oh, look over there! And did they attack you? It's always a joke between. <laughs> well, and I was—I think I mentioned this to you on the phone, Warren. Um, the I, I I have sat down with people from every generation, from like I said, '60s on, and. There is always an immediate kinship for people who worked at Disneyland, mm-hmm. and specifically for people who work in the same area as other people. And it's, and, and by no means am I equating the Jungle Cruise to military service. It's, but it's the same thing when you have different generations of people who served in the same branch of the, the you know, armed forces, mm-hmm. um, because you've gone through something that is unique. Uh, unique <laughs> And that you've gone through something together, even if it's different times, but you've done the same thing and had the same joys and struggles. Um, So every time I've sat down with someone, there's this immediate thing where I say, you know, you've been on the river when a boat derails and you have that immediate sound that you know that that boat has come off the rail. (laughs) And that moment of panic that goes through your your mind where you know you're going to have to sit there for 10 minutes and talk until they can get out and rescue you. (laughs) You know, every generation has has that same Mm -hmm. feeling. Um, I guess the the big question, I mean, because I can do math. Um, uh, so I can I can go backwards in my head and say that you you were in your twenties twenty seven twenty eight when you started at Disneyland. I guess that would be about right. Yeah, late twenties. Well, let me tell you how I got involved with Disney. Uh, I was living in Illinois, college graduate, and started working with my father in his uh, rather large greenhouse. We sold cut flowers to Chicago and St. Louis, and it was very, uh, very good business even during the Depression. People like to have flowers around. Anyway, uh, I start, I, I'm dyslexic, so I can't spell. I've never been uh, interested in uh, writing as a career, so I... Uh, uh, I was an ag major, so mm-hmm. <laughs> I took all the sciences, the natural sciences. Anyway, I uh, read a lot, and I uh, was much involved in uh, Boy Scouting, so I mm-hmm. saw some things in Boy's life that I thought, oh, I think I can do a better article than that. So I sent them a few things, and they took them and published them, and uh, didn't come out and say, well, that was great, send us more. But they didn't say, don't send us anything. So <laughs> I continued writing for them, and uh, it wasn't enough to make a living. But I'd also done a, a certain amount of traveling, uh, leading bicycle trips and odd places like two months in Mexico and and another one uh, two months in Europe, Central Europe. <clears throat> anyway... Uh, I I did slideshows, and in the small towns in the Midwest, anything from Europe was pretty pretty exotic, and a lot of uh, women's clubs would like the stuff on garden, European gardens, and the men would like more the historic stuff on uh, on Germany, France, England, whatever. So anyway, I, I didn't make a great living, but I was living at home, and it wasn't bad, and so forth. And but this was after you fought. Say again? This was after World War II. When you oh, fought. yeah. yeah. I'd been in the service and been wounded and 
out and so forth. So, uh, uh, yeah, I think I'm possibly a little younger than you were thinking because I was about 22 when I got out of college and then I'd spent a couple years looting trips and doing this sort of unusual stuff. And then somewhere in there, oh, my mother was ill and uh, I wrote written to Disney and said uh, I've done a lot of camping, a lot of outdoor stuff and I can take pictures any way I could fit into your living desert and some of that stuff. Well they were eager to get a lot of wilderness pictures especially Mm -hmm. close ups of animals and they said yeah come on out we'll give you a camera and a lot of film and tell you what we're interested in and send you off for a few months. And I had to stay in Illinois until my mother died, until my father was settled down. <clears throat> so by the time I got to California, I w- stayed with my brother, who uh, lived and worked in California, was married with children. And <clears throat> I went over to the people I had written to, and they said, oh, gee, we just gave our last camera out a couple weeks ago, and we don't really have uh, any more openings for people doing that stuff. And they said, what, you got to California yesterday? I said, yeah. They said, if you just want a job, go down to Disneyland. They're hiring. <laughs> so I went down to Disneyland and got hired. <laughs> That's how I got there. Then the whole experience of... I had been to California a couple times before, so the the beach culture and that stuff didn't shocked me terribly, but it was a different experience from a small town in the Midwest. Uh, And of course, the jungle boat was sort of favored even in those days, because we made money. The first summer it was open, there was a lot of people. Everybody was on vacation, and Disneyland had been heavily advertised on TV. They mm-hmm. even had a program that showed how it was built, mm-hmm. and they'd show a bulldozer leveling off an area, and then uh, they'd say three weeks later this building was there, and they'd show you sort of time-lapse things. And So it was heavily advertised. But once fall came, and all the crowds weren't there, why... Uh, Uh, A lot of the rides suffered. They just weren't getting the people. And the whole ticketing system was different in those days. You got a long string of yellow tickets, and there were only two or three e-tickets. Those were for the big rides. Mm -hmm. Jungle Boat, uh, I guess the river river boat, and they didn't have the, the scary thing on the mountain yet. But anyway, everybody sort of protected their e-tickets, but most everybody used at least one e-ticket for the jungle ride. And we had that feeling that we were just a little bit special and uh, sort of like we could do no wrong because Mm -hmm. we were making money and some of the other rides were just sort of sitting there. And uh, so we didn't get away with a whole lot of terrible stuff, but we, we played a lot of sort of jokes that later on I'm sure were clamped down on. First of all, they wanted us to follow that script. And I read the script and tried to use it a little bit, but I thought, I don't know, this is somebody in the back office somewhere, some bean counter sort of thought, well, this is the stuff we want to bring out here, the 
the different names and the rivers and it was fairly dry i mean it was it it was a long time before the jokes kind of crept their way into that the ride the, from what i understand the initial you know first four or five years it was meant to be a nature ride i mean it was meant to be yeah nature they wanted you to mention all the uh, the country the river names and so forth and it, it wasn't a bad tour it mm-hmm. just wasn't it wasn't me and it wasn't most of the guys and then i should mention that <clears throat> we were one of the few groups of maybe not almost the only group that got to pick our own outfits yeah uh and that was sort of fun and the one of the things I remember very distinctly is that probably a third of the drivers on the jungle boats were people who were Hollywood types. They'd, they'd had bit parts in movies or TV, mm-hmm. and they really thought, if I can just keep my name and my face out there and get it known, why well, I'm going to land one of the bigger parts on, on some... TV thing and it'll be a great job. I mean, that's what they wanted—a real, a real acting job. So they sort of threw themselves into leading the jungle boats. I mean, they were really—they were acting through the through the through the ride, and and they were fun to be around because they were guys that would tell you about this or that bit part they'd had, and I found that rather fascinating, because I'd never known anybody who'd been a bit part in a movie. (laughs) That was fun. But uh, I just immediately thought, well, I think I can jazz this ride up. And one of the things I did, that I was never told to never do it, because I don't think it ever got back to the people who would have said that, but uh, most of the people had no idea that the uh, boats were on a track Mm -hmm. and so I would guide real carefully when I first got the people on and they could see that I was really into this guiding and then I would say you know I'm new on this job this is my first ride and then I'd see that falls in front of me and we were coming right at it well I had to loosen the knob on the steering wheel so I'd sort of be bouncing around and suddenly I'd lear back and the handle within my arm I'd say oh my gosh we're going to go right into that falls I'd put the thing down and get ready to jump ashore half the boat was with me (laughs) but of course I I put it back on and I didn't even have to I said no actually we're on a track (laughs) and uh there was a couple of the scenes where uh, some of the uh, natives, and they're real natives, I mean, they're black and beads and stripped to the waist and all this stuff, but they have their hands out, and I say, yeah, they're, uh, they're savages. They, they eat missionaries and whatever. They're carnivores, and they're always looking for a handout. <laughs> you know, just, just dumb stuff like that. <laughs> Anyway, uh, the the organization within within each each of the lands, uh, some of them, uh, I don't know how how much hands-on there was, but on the jungle ride, we had an overall manager of of the, of what was that, was that, that was Adventureland, Mm -hmm. yeah. Adventureland, but we hardly ever saw him. He was a Hollywood type who wore uh, 
coats and ties and things. So the sort of the, you'd say the working foreman <clears throat> was this guy that knew about small boats and I picked him up somewhere on the on the dock somewhere. But he wasn't a Hollywood type at all. He was a rough and tumble and a big guy just off the dock somewhere. Mm-hmm. So uh, he would just talk to us a little bit once in a long while about, uh, well, be careful at this turn because that's where we often get hung up. Yeah. Or, uh, And, you know, if you get hung up, you, you just fire your revolver a couple times in the air and we'll send a rescue boat out and so forth. And he was a nice enough guy, but not a not a smooth operator at all. Just mm-hmm. as I say, a rough and tumble guy from off the docks. And but I got along with him, and he was fine. But uh, one time I did get in trouble with him. Uh, sometimes the the crew in the boat would just be really with you, hey hey, and you'd shoot at one animal, hey get them all, shoot them up, let's go, and. <laughs> I got carried away and I fired about three times at the hippos or the crocs or something. Well, quite often, two or three boats had to get, you know, they'd come behind you and none of them could get through. So each driver would shoot two or three times and finally they'd send a rescue boat out. But this one, I didn't even think they would send a rescue boat. I'd fired a couple extra shots. But lo and behold, this straw boss came out and said, uh, we'll get you loose, we'll get you loose. And I said, oh, we, we've broken loose already. Well, why in the world did you make so many shots and get me out here and, and so forth? <laughs> so I got out of that one without too much trouble. But <laughs> we, we did get in our, our little troubles and, and so forth. Uh, and you had quite a bit of time, especially if there the just wasn't a big crowd waiting to get on. So there was a bunch of benches there. I suspect they're still there for anybody waiting to get on a boat. But I was always working on some little craft projects, sometimes for a magazine article and sometimes not. But I would sit there and I'd be whittling or weaving or doing something or other. All the other guys were trying to get hired as <laughs> for movies, so I was the I was the odd man out sort of. <laughs> Uh, but it was a fun job, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the nicest things is, uh, in a small town, there's sort of a limited number of girls that you can date or that are still around mm-hmm. in your little town. So it was uh, it was not a great place for a bachelor to be, but Disneyland was just the opposite. So many girls worked in the booth selling tickets or sometimes guiding people into the theaters or whatever so that you could just uh, see somebody during your break and chat with them a little bit and say, hey, you want to stay around after work? Uh, well, what do you got in mind? Well, we could dance a little bit, we could have a little food, we could listen to a concert or go on a ride you haven't been on or a ride you like. Oh, sure, let's do that. So we'd meet afterward and we'd have to get out of our out of our costumes, but we still had our ID, so you just flash your ID and you could get into anything. Mm-hmm. You couldn't get big food because anything that they had to uh, more or less countable items like plates at a restaurant or mm-hmm. something, you couldn't go in and order that kind of a meal. 
but it was just uh, an ice cream cone or a hot dog quite often they they would say oh sure you work here and we work here and so the night shift would <laughs> take good care of you mm-hmm. but we'd always have a good time and that was fun was it um the i think the reputation of jungle cruise guys through all the generations of people i've talked to that they were they were very popular with the ladies that that tended to be where the, the the female cast members would would uh, would look for a, a good uh, bad boy or a, <laughs> you know, that they they had the reputation of being all the the ladies men would would all be over in the jungle. Uh, well, I I didn't feel it as any pressure, but uh, as I say, I had never never had any trouble picking up a, a good looking girl. <laughs> In fact, I ended up dating one, uh, but. Uh, I don't think we actually have said this within within the recording, but you were there. You were there, basically day one. The you know the, for yeah. the actual public opening on July seventeenth, nineteen fifty five. What what do you remember from that first couple of months? Well, the, the thing we found was sort of funny. They had it, had the park open a couple days earlier, but it was by invitation only, and they had a special ticket. I don't know if it was signed by Walt, but signed by somebody. And they could get anything, food, uh, ice cream, any ride. Mm -hmm. And there weren't that many of them, so there was more or less no great weight. Uh, But I wasn't there for that, but the guys told me about it. They said, those Hollywood people were some of the sloppiest people you've ever seen. They'd order a whole meal and take one bite and say, well, it was free, throw it in the trash, and and just throw it on the ground. They just didn't care. But I wasn't there to notice this, but I remember just hearing a lot of stories. What I did notice was we started getting those tickets, and the original name on them had been whited out, and Joe Schmo was written over the top of it. And we got those for weeks. <laughs> Pretty soon, the whiteout was getting so thick it was breaking off. And I thought, well, there's a lot of people in Hollywood willing to, <laughs> to, sell willing to push the envelope here and <laughs> see what they can get for this old ticket. <laughs> but finally, people quit using it, I guess. But I was just amazed, because in a small town, you tried to pull something like that, and Boy, you immediately got a reputation. You were a person not to be trusted and uh, to be watched out for and so forth. Didn't seem to bother the Hollywood people at all. Anything we can get away with, let's do it. Do you remember the very first tour or the very first day that you were? Well, uh, I remember this guy from the docks had me read the thing. And... I guess he actually went with me on the very first ride and told me I didn't have to steer or do, do anything. But uh, I was I was pretty much on my own, and, mm-hmm. and uh, I liked to talk. And actually, at at the University of Illinois, I was on the a group. What did we call ourselves? Well, we were the we were the tour group. We were the students who took mm-hmm. uh, people on tours of to the campus. And I, I found that sort of fun. I'd, I'd never been on the stage in high school in any of the plays, and oh, I'd, 
done a lot of leadership stuff in, in scouting, but I, I was not a polished public speaker, but the, the jungle tours were just sort of natural. You just talked about where you were and, and always tried to th- throw in a silly joke or something to excite the people a little bit or this or that. Oh, <laughs> Disney did pull a, a few funny little things. During the winter, that first winter, the attendance really went down, down, down. And I, I suppose on some days they actually lost money because there was <laughs> more employees than there were customers. So they were looking around for anything to boost attendance. And they had the idea that they would bring in a little circus, a real proper circus, but a, a little circus, you know, a few horses, uh, a few jugglers, a few clowns, mm-hmm. and they set up this small tent way in the back. I don't know if you've ever heard this story before. Yeah. It was I don't know, probably only went on for maybe six weeks or a couple months. But anyway, it, it did, I think, help because people could do the whole Disneyland thing and then go back and see the circus. And how many shows they put on a day, I'm not sure. I guess Maybe three or four. Mm-hmm. But anyway... They, uh, the day shift would be getting off, and uh, we got this sort of lecture. Uh, go back and see the circus, but uh, check out first. So actually we lost a couple hours because there was nobody around. So they would let us go a little bit early, but mm-hmm. we had to punch out. I said... This seems to me just a little bit underhanded for uh, sure they let us see a circus, which we've all seen before, or seen similar surfaces, but they want us to lose two hours of our pay. So I moved my card over as if I'd punched out, but I hadn't punched out. When I came back after the circus, I punched out. So I got paid for two hours to watch the circus. And I thought, well, you don't win many (laughs) at Disneyland, but I won that one. (laughs) I I, I imagine that if it's the slow season, they wanted some uh, people in the seats, so you guys would help fill up the circus to make it look a little more uh, Well, I never thought of that, but yeah, that's a very good observation. Yeah, that probably happened. (laughs) And... Let's see, I was trying to think of any of the other little things we pulled. Well, we weren't supposed, of course, to get food from just our IDs, but mm-hmm. the uh, the people went along with that. I mean, not that we ate a lot or mm-hmm. anything very fancy, but at least we uh, we weren't didn't go away hungry either. So, what when when you had your first, you know? couple rounds of guests what was the reaction to all of the uh, the animals and the animatronics because that was pretty uh, I don't want to say cutting edge but it was something that that you know would surprise people to come around the corner and see a hippopotamus in the river uh, people always liked that well they liked or they screamed or they hollered or they grabbed their little kids or something it, it was one of the high points Missing the falls and then going back under the falls, that was always fun. Uh, I knew a lot of the plants because I was with a horticulture background. So once in a while I'd throw in just a little botany. I'd say this plant is only found in 
in the Mekong River Delta, and this is something and probably pretty boring, but it, it filled up a little mm-hmm. space and so forth. I don't think any of the other writers ever did that, but uh, they liked the animals very much. That was uh, one of the high points, and it was near the end, so it, uh, yeah. We did, liked it. Did, did you find that a lot of the, the guests didn't know that they were uh, mechanical? Did, did, uh, were, there, were there people who were, who were taken by it who thought uh, they were real animals? Uh, sometimes for the first 30 seconds or something, but I'm pretty sure once they saw the hippo mouth <laughs> going over and over again. But <laughs> once in a while, just as a joke, I'd be wandering around Disneyland during my break or something, and they had the swans and that little bridge when you went into the uh, the, the big castle. Mm-hmm. And uh, the swans are sort of funny birds in that they, they look a little mechanical. And somebody would come up and say, gee, that's an unusual-looking swan. And I'd whisper to them, it's all mechanical. They'd say, really? Yeah, mechanical. <laughs> Of course, pretty soon they figured out I was lying. But <laughs> we had our fun. The um, you you had mentioned to me you you only stayed there for a relatively short time. Was it through that first winter? Or? Uh, pretty much through the winter, and I uh, found this what turned out to not to be a really career job by any means, but a very well-paying job in Mexico. Uh, getting a rice plantation started. And the reason they wanted to grow rice, they already were growing cotton and alfalfa. Uh, cotton mainly it was their cash crop and alfalfa to help the soil. Mm-hmm. But uh, the water, by the time it got into Mexico on the Colorado River, so much of the best water had been taken out. So mm-hmm. it was pretty salty. And you irrigate your cotton takes a lot of water. You really have to irrigate cotton so the salts would build up. And it would finally get in cotton. It's very tolerant of salts. But it finally gets so the cotton wouldn't even grow very well. So they said, we got to do something. Well, the standard practice was to flood your soil and let it drain. Well, the soil had to be tiled underneath. Uh, three or four feet down you had to put these tile that would take the water and flush it out so it was rather expensive to get fields ready for this for rice but they were willing to do it because their cotton was not doing so well Mm -hmm. Uh, so there was a lot of things they didn't understand I had to do a lot of soil testing and decide on uh, with that rather sandy soil, how big the berms had to be to mm-hmm. keep the flood water in it it uh, It was an interesting job, but as I say, there was no career opportunity because once the rice was growing and so forth, why my my end of it was done mm-hmm. but I'd earned so much money at that point. <laughs> I was living in Mexico essentially free. I lived in one of our buildings <laughs> anyway. Uh, do you feel like the from coming from a small town and then having this role that that was almost a little like acting but being in front of people do you feel like your time working at Disneyland carried something into the rest of your life did it did it contribute to who you were for the time afterwards yeah i'm sure it did i'm sure it did because it it gave me confidence talking to groups and different groups 
And after I got back from Mexico, I started teaching at Cal Poly Pomona. Mm -hmm. And uh, the very first year, they moved from San Dimas, from their, just their little campus over there, to the new campus. We had uh, one building, <laughs> the science building. And so all the administrative offices were in there, uh, mainly agriculture, because we were what they had. Uh, were in there. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of tomfoolery in getting that campus going. And uh, the army was bad enough. I mean, the army could. And <laughs> the old saying in the army: "There's the right way, the wrong way, and the army way." Mm. But <laughs> I said, at least there was a little bit of sanity <laughs> behind what the army did. But there doesn't seem to be anything here. But anyway. I had uh, big lecture classes. I lectured to 200 people, and I, I didn't find that difficult at all. And yeah. probably you're right. The uh, the jungle boat was a, uh, a, a preamble good, to yeah. that. Good introduction to public yeah. speaking. Yeah. Did uh, have have you have you been back to Disneyland since? Oh, many times, but not much recently. Uh, my wife and I had a rather unusual, well, that's really a wonderful thing happen. We both retired at 59, we both had our health, and we both had enough money to travel. Well, we had both led bicycle trips in Europe. We had both, she had taught school in Europe three different years. So, and she spoke fluent French, and I speak passable German, not good German, but passable. And so we just said, we both love to travel, let's travel. Mm -hmm. So every, almost every year, maybe we missed one or two, we would take an overseas trip uh, during a year and then usually do something around the U.S., visit friends or do some bicycling. Or a lot of it was camping. We, we had a camper. And so I've racked up. 98 countries. Hmm. I'd like to make it 100 before I get cremated, but <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but uh, we just really enjoy traveling, and we got in with a gal who uh, spoke Arabic, and she liked to go into the odd countries in Central Asia. Mm -hmm. So one of our first trips with her we went to Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, mm -hmm. Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan. <laughs> and after that, we've hit a few of the other Silk Road countries, uh, uh, Azerbaijan and Georgia. Uh, so we can a lot of times follow the, the uprisings in the newspaper. Oh, yeah, we were there. <laughs> <laughs> Aleppo and Syria, one of our favorite towns, and they've been fighting off and on there. Well, for thousands of years. Keep <laughs> off and on has been a long time. Yeah, keep asking questions, because I'm sure I've forgotten a lot of no, no, funny absolutely. little things. That, yeah, no, no, I, yeah, and I, you know, the, was there, you said that the, your foreman took you on the boat that first day, was there any training at all, or did they just, that was put, it. Yeah, they just put you out there with a script and said, yeah. uh, talk a little bit? Yeah. Well, I think somebody must have looked through our personnel files and said, we need people with 
with just a little get up and go or mm-hmm. uh, a little experience. Yeah, a little background. And here's a guy with a college graduate who graduated with high mm-hmm. honors. He, yeah. he must have a few what, smarts. Was, was it an older group than the rest of the park? Um, probably, yeah, probably, because they had picked, as I say, these guys who thought of themselves as actors, and in a way they were, but uh, they they were usually guys who'd been around Hollywood a bit, <laughs> and as I say, they'd had bit parts and this and that, and uh, they were a fun bunch. I like I liked those guys, but most of the other ride attendants were. Uh, just local Anaheim people. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it's another sort of funny thing. I imagine you've heard a little of this before. An awful lot of, especially the secretaries, were <laughs> girlfriends or uh, mistresses for some of the upper people, the mm-hmm. uh, the bean counters in the back offices. And usually we didn't have much contact with them but we uh, we did have to pick up our check mm-hmm. and once in a while there'd be a little uh, discrepancy in the checks so this one girl was obviously not qualified to be a secretary <laughs> I mean she had been somebody's girlfriend and she may have been great in bed but <laughs> in a secretary's role she was way out of place so one time they'd, they'd somehow or another missed a whole day on my paycheck. So I went into this girl and I said, uh, this is wrong. If you check the records, you'll see that I was here every day that week. In fact, I never missed work. I was very healthy. And I'd like to get this back pay. Well, what do you expect me to do about that? <laughs> I said, well, you're the secretary. You're the boss here. I I thought you were the person to come to. No, I can't help you. I don't understand that stuff. So I waited until one day a week she was off, and a temp was in there. And I brought my problem. Oh, sure, that's no problem. Let me handle it. It'll it'll be on your next week's check. I think we got paid every two weeks. So I thought, what in the world is that girl doing in there? Well, I guess eventually they discovered that she couldn't type, couldn't take dictation, couldn't file. So they put her in a in a booth selling tickets. Mm-hmm. And, and somehow or another, a lot of the guys discovered that uh, she was no longer this guy's girlfriend and they could hit on her. So everybody would say, well, did you make out with so-and-so last night? Oh, yeah, she's great in bed. So she, she became the... <laughs> the go-to, if you <laughs> want a little sex, <laughs> the go-to girl. Was, um, you know, obviously uh, Walt had a presence in the park in the, the early days. He wasn't, you know, every day there. He was, had a media empire to run, but did you did you feel the presence of the, the Disney side of things within oh, the park? Oh, I liked Walt. I talked to him many times. He, uh, especially the first couple of months, he was walking up and down Main Street and he'd see me, me with a sort of wild outfit. I had a slouch hat and, I don't know, a Hawaiian hurt shirt or something. It looked like a like a trader from one of the islands. And, and he knew immediately who, or where I was from, what ride. And we'd chat, and uh, uh, he had an apartment above the firehouse. Yeah, 
the firehouse. By, yeah, by I, City, I guess City that, Hall in the yeah, firehouse. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, his... Uh, uh, I, don't, I don't know how many children he had, but his daughter had married a basketball star or something from UCLA, something like that. And he'd have the grandkids out there occasionally. And when he had the grandkids, they were pretty young, he would take them in the cab of the train. Mm-hmm. And it just made the circle. I guess they had the second train at that time, too. But anyway, you could tell when Walt was in that cab because he blew that whistle <laughs> about every 30 seconds on the whole circle. <laughs> Otherwise, he usually just blew the whistle coming into a station or or something. <laughs> he, he took over that cab and he had his fun. No, he was just a nice guy. I, I never asked him for a favor. Uh, he never asked personal questions to me. Oh, he might have said, how's it going? And uh, uh, get a lot of customers over at the Jungle Ride. I'd say, yes, sir. <laughs> but uh, he was just a nice guy. And, and when I go back, once in a while I'll say, yeah, I ran this ride. 20 years ago. Did you know Walt? Did you know Walt? Oh, yeah. oh yeah. sure, I knew Walt. <laughs> we all knew Walt. <laughs> yeah, that first, the first uh, 10 years before he passed, it was, uh, he was the regular presence. It was, it was, he was not shy about spending his time there. Did you ever meet Walt? Yeah, no, no, I, a uh, little, little too young for that. He, yeah. he, uh, he, he was just a great guy. Yeah. yeah. The, the gentleman I interviewed who worked there in 64, his family got to, to be a little closer with the Disneys. I, he had two daughters. Um, what was his name? Uh, Don Bobs is the guy who was there. And Don, Don, uh, this started in 1964, and he worked all the way into the 80s. One uh, of the felons that I, I just knew vaguely, I think everybody knew him, was a Spanish-American guy, or Mexican guy, whose father had owned... Not, not maybe all of the land, but quite a bit of the land that they mm-hmm. bought for Disney, for Disneyland. And I guess the parents realized that there were going to be a lot of jobs. So part of the whole contract to sell their property was their son would be given a fun job. Mm-hmm. And he was a young guy interested in girls, and he, I don't think he wanted a career or anything. But sure. He... Uh, uh, I don't know, his name just got around. We all knew him, and he was a friendly guy, and we'd chat with him, and this and that. But I guess he had so much money from the family, having sold their property, that the news about him was always, well, he wrecked another Ferrari last week. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff like that. (laughs) I guess he he just didn't worry about money after he made the sale. It's um it's interesting the you know looking back with nostalgia is always a uh, a challenging proposition because it never is to the people who lived it as we see it from from this vantage point. Absolutely. Yeah. And you look at Disneyland with you know all of the city of Anaheim that's grown up around it, all the hotels all of the, um, you know, I, I'm sure that in those early days, there wasn't a lot to do in the area. It, it was pretty undeveloped, as I, as I recall. Yeah. You know, it took a couple of years for them to, to, you know, start getting motels and 
all the, the freeway construction around it and get a little bit more infrastructure. Did it feel like an oasis? Did it feel like the a little island in the middle of, of Orange County? Uh, yeah, and uh, I, I roomed with the family. Uh, they only had one daughter, so they had one of those tract houses with three bedrooms, so I had, had my own bedroom and got to know them very well. But they had some friends who had a small motel, and every once in a while I'd get the scuttlebutt about well, they really want to add to the hotel or the motel, but they don't have any money, and somebody wants to buy them out and uh, enlarge the place, and they're not sure about that. So I'd always get these little bits of scuttlebutt mm-hmm. about development around town. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like it sort of went in jerks and starts and stops. Uh, I think a lot of people didn't, businessmen didn't really realized that Disneyland was a big operation and that it wasn't going to go away and that almost anything you bought in Anaheim was it was going to be a good deal but I think they were just slow and catching on to that just like this guy with the motel and he wasn't sure if he should take out a loan and enlarge the place or this and that Uh, so yeah that, that Mm -hmm. that was true and when I sometimes get back and see a lot of development, uh, our family just went down to see that Chinese dancers in uh, mm-hmm. Long Beach. Yep. And I hadn't been in downtown Long Beach for a long time. That's, that's where I live. Oh. <laughs> I live right uh, three, two, three blocks away from that performing arts center. Oh. Well, I was overwhelmed with the tall buildings yeah. down yeah. there. I mean, I remember Long Beach as being sort of a, a beach community with a lot of curio shops yeah. and. Uh, what was there any? Uh, what was the nightlife like? I mean, obviously, the uh, early on the park wasn't open very late, you know, six or eight a, uh, eight p.m. Was there any? What did, What did you do with your coworkers? Did you go and? Was there? Well, a lot of times, right in the beginning, we hadn't been on these various rides, so we'd just go on a ride, and and that was sort of fun. And, and of course, if you were with a girl you liked and she liked you, it didn't have to be too spectacular. Yep. uh, Pretty girl makes anything a better experience. doesn't it, though? You do a lot of food photography. Yeah, food. uh, I do weddings as well, but mainly magazines and menus and... Pictures of things like that. Well, as I say, I got into writing sort of through the back door through doing a few craft articles for mm-hmm. Boys Life. Well, and I, my, a lot of my background is scouting. My dad was a professional for twenty years. Oh, really? Yeah, I, we were up in the Northwest, um, and I uh, scouted all through high school. My dad was a camp director at a couple of the bigger camps in, in Washington. Uh, oh, so well, there. My background is heavily rooted. I grew up. I was the camp brat when I was three and four. You know, I was I was there that entire time. So, oh, I loved scouting. It wasn't oh. a whole lot to do in a small town. So. But, but you know, it was the thing that tied a lot of those towns together because it was the thing that they. I, I actually think scouting was what they used to keep the boys out of trouble more than anything. <laughs> well, gave them some good skills, but it kept them kept them out of trouble. Yeah, gave them some adventure and stuff. Yeah. Well, I worked my way through all the ranks. I wasn't scoutmaster for mm-hmm. more than about a year and a half, but I did all the assistant patrol leader and that stuff. Uh, 
went on the first World Jamboree after World War II. It mm-hmm. was in France. Yep. And I was an assistant scoutmaster on that. Uh, one fellow and I, he was an older scout, got along quite well, and we still do things together. Mm-hmm. In fact, this last September, I went on a week-long canoe trip with him, a couple of his sons, and some other guys in uh, Manitoba, northern Manitoba. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, great canoeing, but with my bad legs, the, the portages were very yeah. tough for me. <laughs> That's why you make sure you bring the young guys with you to, to yeah. do that heavy lifting. Then I uh, did two summers on the staff at Philmont, mm-hmm. which I really enjoy. In fact, my cane, which is here somewhere, is applewood mm-hmm. from... Kit Carson's Apple Orchard, which is now on the Scout Ranch. Mm-hmm. And I, it was a dead branch, and I pruned it 50, 60 years ago and made a cane out of it. So I love scouting, and I, uh, I uh, probably wrote, wrote mm-hmm. 60 or 70 magazine articles for Boys Life. Yeah. But I also did uh, three books that were all published and sold out. Mm-hmm. Did, did you want to talk about your... your um time at the castle at all well the castle really doesn't enter into oh no i'm just curious though oh, it's kind of interesting oh yeah, yeah well i uh, learned blacksmithing from our local blacksmith back in illinois to get the boy scout merit badge so mm-hmm. my one and only reason for doing it well i like crafts i liked whittling carpentry uh, all that stuff so i uh, got out here <coughs> and build a little forge in our backyard. So I did some light blacksmithing around here. And uh, I had a friend who knew Michael quite well, and he said, Warren, you know something about blacksmithing. Michael needs a blacksmith. And I said, "Uh, yeah. Well, I I knew Michael from just around town. He was a character Mm -hmm. because he never worked. He only built castles. Yep. (laughs) So I went up, and uh, as I say, we, we knew each other just vaguely, and I said, uh, Mr. Rebelli, I understand you like a blacksmith. He said, yeah, we've got these great big cast iron pots like this, and I would like out of heavy stock, maybe one inch by one inch or one inch round, to have a hook that goes on each side of the... Uh, the big cast iron pot in the ring there goes up and has a ring at the top so it can be hung and then down. I said, well, yeah, that doesn't sound too difficult. So I fired up the forge and started working. The hard part was this heavy steel and this big long piece, it must have weighed about 30 pounds, and I'm trying to hold it with one hand and pound with the other hand, and he wasn't about to help me with anything. So I made three of those, and they're still up there holding those big cast iron pots in place. So he said, yeah, you want to be the castle blacksmith? I said, sure. (laughs) And I was never, never paid, just a volunteer, but then I got to teaching blacksmithing up there. And he was just a marvelous guy. He uh, uh, never graduated from anything. He always flunked out or got kicked out of every school. But... He was a master at building. I mean, mm-hmm. he understood electricity, plumbing, 
Uh, Carpentry. Yeah. <laughs> and he was, he was just a fun guy to be around because he was all full of surprises. And, and then I got to leading tours and led a lot of the school tours, and that mm-hmm. was fun, too. I, my, my real experience before I found you through them was um, I saw the Huell Hauser piece, mm-hmm. uh, the California gold piece he did up there, and that was it's still it's avail uh, it's on YouTube. It's actually available to for people to view online. The whole Huell Hauser trip that's up through the through the castle. Yeah, well, he did one, and then what? Eighteen or twenty years later, he Came did back. the second one, yeah. and in that one, he uh, wants to see the blacksmithing. And just by chance, none of this was arranged. My son was up there. He's an engineer, but he blacksmiths occasionally. And he was up there pounding away. And Huell said, well, uh, don't I remember another blacksmith uh, when I was here some years ago? And my son pops up and says, yeah, that was my dad. (laughs) So uh, they show that uh, film clip. On a loop up there on the TV. Yeah, they have it up there. But uh, I didn't, and I never worked for Michael. He almost always had somebody working for him. And if you want to talk about funny stories, <laughs> that, that castle is just full of stories. Yeah. Some true and some not true. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's like any story. We don't really worry about whether it's true or not true. We tell the story anyway. <laughs> Just the tomfoolery that went around, went on up there. It was, uh, it, it, it just, uh, I mean, it, it got to the point where everything became laughable. But we, we loved it. <laughs> we still like it. We still have a lot of stuff up that goes on up there. Every, uh, the the last Sunday of every uh, month, they have a a potluck brunch mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, but my daughter who just left Bonnie was a good cook and she always makes up a nice big egg egg casserole thing and mm-hmm. a lot of times we have a lot of fruit trees so we'll bring up fruit too and dump out a bunch of fruit but uh, and there are parties and weddings and I don't know all sorts of stuff that go on up mm-hmm. there and <laughs> It's just a fun place. Is if you live around here and get involved with the castle, uh, uh, you're called a, a farmhand. And uh, at the castle, PHs become Fs, so an Fs become PHs. So farmhand is spelled PH. <laughs> well, I think I think really, I mean, that's obviously one of the two things that. This area is known for it's the castle and the donut shop, or the two, the donut man <laughs> shop. I think those are the two things the town is known best for. Well, I, I, I often we get the times, and we've taken the times for years. We've lived in this house fifty years, by the way. Anyway, uh, once in a while, the maybe every two or three years, there'll be something in the times about the Watts Towers, mm-hmm. and that's fine. It's in a unique thing and has a unique yeah. history. But you never read anything about Rubel Castle, except when Michael died, it was written up. Well, I think part of that is that the towers are obviously a, a little closer to the L.A. Central. Yeah. This is a little a little farther out from people's, you know, yeah. 
you know, well, conception of it. What, what I've noticed about the times is you get beyond Pasadena, and you're not exactly Times country. I mean, yeah, yeah. The, uh, uh, the other local papers sort of take over. And uh, they used to, in the food section, they used to always have a, uh, once a week, uh, the food section came out, and they had uh, a restaurant of, of the week. Mm-hmm. And over a period of 10 or 15 years, I always read that, looked at that. I didn't always read it. And I think in all that time, in 52 restaurants times 12 years, that's a lot of restaurants. And I think two restaurants from east of Pasadena yeah. were mentioned. The rest were all over on the coast or in mm-hmm. downtown L.A. Yeah. Well, I, I lived in Pasadena for, we just moved there, uh, moved from Pasadena to Long Beach. Uh, Pasadena doesn't have a great food culture. And th- there's, there's a new restaurant that I really, really love that's on Union Street. Um, it's called Union is the name of the restaurant. And the, the guy is an Italian-trained chef who works with pork. Mm. And he made a porchetta roast that was inexpensive, but it was gigantic. And my wife cut it with a spoon. <laughs> it was beautifully cooked. He made a, a pork ragu that was as good as I've ever had. Ooh. But not really reasonable price for a nice fine dining restaurant. Like, you know, $12, $14 for a full meal. Mm. And it's it's nice quality food. We will have to try that. Yeah, I'll 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 send Bonnie the information because yeah. it's it's that's one of the places in Pasadena that's worth going out for a nice meal. So we had what we call a high class Italian restaurant in Tulipanos. Mm-hmm. It's in northern uh, Covina, but uh, the family broke up and the food just went down, 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 yeah. down, down. I, I generally, Italian is not one of the places I go out for because I'm Italian. I grew up with it. So I know that uh, anything they can do, I can do at home probably better. So, <laughs> What part of Italy was your family uh, from? We are uh, Calabresi, Calabrian. Oh, okay. Because so. my unit fought in Italy during the war, and yeah. that's where I was wounded. We're at the ankle of the boot. Ankle of the boot, yeah. Well, we were... We were up at the top of the... Mm-hmm. Of the of Near the, the Alps. The, well, we never really actually made it to the Alps. We were in the Apennines. Mm-hmm. And then we cut down and wanted to get into the Po Valley and mm-hmm. uh, join up with the British troops yeah. on the other side of Italy. And that's where I was wounded. But, uh, yeah, I have a lot of crazy war stories, too. Yeah. <laughs> I've been well, interviewed on on some of those... Well, you know, it's uh, when you when you've been able to have a full life. There's a lot to speak to. You know, it's it's always a, a broad range of experiences gives you a lot of opportunities to tell good stories. <laughs> but I still look. I'm I'm really I almost have to apologize that I don't remember more really unusual stories because I'm. I'm sure there were a few. I mean, oh sure, we would we would, uh, uh, you know, get a branch stuck under the boat and mm-hmm. ah, that's and that a day kind of stuff. Yeah. Did, did you have any celebrities that came through when you were on the boats that uh, impressed you when you had a, someone come on? Were there any actresses or? Well, uh, having grown up way away from Hollywood, I wasn't really 
up on most of the people, but I remember one incident that I thought was was so sort of typically Hollywood. Mm-hmm. This one young, good-looking girl, I guess, had had a part in a movie and figured she was on her way up. She was going to be the the new Marilyn Monroe or something, and she came to Hollywood or came to Disneyland, and she had two professionals with her. One was a hairstylist and the other one was her wardrobe specialist. So if anybody asked her for a picture, she would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. The hairstylist would run up and just fuss with her hair a little bit. The clothes stylist really didn't do anything, but she'd go up and straighten out this or that. And so this lady has this cheap little box camera, and she takes a picture with her box camera. And I thought, Kans, if it had been a real professional with a, with an expensive camera, and he said it's going to be in the so and so paper tonight. But this, I thought, well, if you're trying to be a starlet, I guess you you scratch at anything to get your your picture taken. Yeah. Hey, you know, it's it's it's. She had a gimmick. She had a she had a PR for you know getting herself uh, exposure. So. Yeah. Well, I'm, I know you've got your your lunch, and so I just I'm just going to ask you just one more quick question. Oh no, I've got you got a few I've, minutes. I've got forty minutes. To okay, I just I don't know how far away it is. What's what's the thing that you took away from working at Disney that's kind of stuck with you? For for your whole time, is there is there a a thing you learned or a, a a story that stuck with you? What's what's something that's influenced you sixty years later? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I really had never worked for anybody else other than my father, and of course that was a father son thing, which is always sort of a mixed up yeah. business, <laughs> especially when you have a tough old Luxembourger father (laughs) but uh, so I didn't have any real work experience I had never punched a time clock I rarely had to go up to anybody and say hey you you forgot one day on my paycheck that was all a new experience for me so probably and, and that it was the entertainment industry I mean if I had gone to work for uh, a restaurant chain or something or mm-hmm. even a, a large nursery well I almost I almost one time did work for Armstrong's <laughs> but uh, that would have been at least in my field but having uh, being suddenly in with this Hollywood gang who I didn't understand and didn't know what made them tick mm-hmm. and I pretty soon pretty shortly learned that Disneyland had to make money, and that's why they liked the Jungle Boats, because we made money. Yeah. And so we were a little bit, uh, I mean, we didn't feel we're anything real special, but there was just a little bit of feeling there that we were just a little bit different than mm-hmm. somebody who uh, uh, sat somebody down on a, on a little ride, and they went around, and sure. they got them off the ride. I mean, we were... With them, you're part of the entertainment. Of, yeah, we were part of the entertainment. We were supposed to be funny and different and uh, nice to the people, and we never took tips. Nobody told us not to take tips, mm-hmm. but 
I don't know, we just thought we've got a job, it doesn't seem like we should have our hand out for anything, and we never did. Or I didn't, I don't know, maybe later on they they did get into the tipping culture. No, we, we, we say no. I mean, all we, we, uh, we would refuse tips three times. If someone insisted the third time, we were allowed to take it out of courtesy. Oh, really? It was up, but we always would say no three times before we would accept anything to make sure people understood no, no, no. And then uh, if someone really, you know, pushed it, we would take it as a courtesy. But if it was, uh, you would get people traveling internationally, and some of the times that they would give gifts that were way beyond. <laughs> and uh, if they were more than like a $10 or what, I don't know, the, I remember the exact limit, you'd report it to your managers. They'd put it in part of the... the community pool of things that they donate to charity at the end of the year oh my god but so. but yeah but the, I, mean, I think i think in eight years i think i had one person try to tip me in the whole time and i you know it wasn't a common occurrence but how how long did you actually drive a jungle boat uh about four and a half years and probably i was there about 80 percent of the time hmm so, so so you really knew the routine oh yeah 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 so forth. Yeah, no, I, I worked at the um, the Indiana Jones ride. I worked at the the great moments with Mr. Lincoln. The uh, yeah, Amtron, I uh, uh, I knew I think eight or nine different things. And, you know, you do a lot of parades and things. Um, but uh, for the most part, I mean, Jungle was my love. That was the thing that I did. That I was always the kid in in school that was the. The one who would tell the stupid puns and the bad jokes. And, uh, <laughs> if there was a way that I could put wordplay or turn a phrase in a way that became clever, that was always my... <laughs> I, I always liked having that little twist in the language was one thing I liked to do. Um, you're saying you like the horticulture culture. One of my favorite jokes is, you know, there's some... Over there's some hibiscus, and then over here's the lobiscus. <laughs> and if you look in the water, there's the sea biscus. There's the what? Sea biscuits. Oh. <laughs> um, oh, that's a good one. I like. But I, I like I like the jokes that I the the one of my favorites when the nighttime we had little spotlights mm-hmm. that were wired into the boat. We could show things. We could shine the light. And as you go under the waterfall, that back side there, they used a concrete that had a, a fleck in it, like a metallic fleck, like a. You know, like a little reflective yeah. metal of some uh-huh. sort. And I would turn the lights off and I would shine my light on that and it would twinkle a little bit. And I'd tell people that that was uh, what people called fool's gold. But it's only uh, found in, in three places in the world. And that's, you know, Cuba, Jamaica, and at Disneyland. It's, it's the world famous pyrite of the Caribbean. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that that that's the kind of stupid thing that I would that I would put in there. It um yeah, it was it it's it was a formative thing for me because it was my personality of a job that I got to get paid for. So it was it was who I was before I walked in the door and it made me more of who I was by the time I walked out. Now how old were you at that time? I was 30 when I started at Disneyland. Oh, okay. So I worked there until I was about 37, 38. Um and at 43 now, so it's uh, interesting that time continues to go forward. I don't know when they're going to fix that. Um, <laughs> it seems to be a real problem. So uh, what do you think will be done with all this, these interviews and this stuff? Well, we are keeping it... At, Can you get that, Estella? Sure. We're keeping it as an archive for people. And, and just to give you a, a feel, we put up one 
uh, two weeks ago, a week ago Tuesday, and it's been listened to 5,000 times already. Now, this is on it, one of these... It's, it's online, so oh. on, on the internet, and yeah. then um, people can either go to the, the, the pay, the website, and they can listen to it there, or there's some ways to listen to it on the phone, and I'll send you a CD of the of a couple interviews. Oh, they're great. But um, yeah. the, what I'm really looking at it as is that there are, you know, there's probably only maybe six, eight thousand people who've been Jungle Cruise skippers at Disneyland. Okay. <laughs> Just, I mean, you know, if I'm doing math off the top of my head, and you know, if you include Disney World and there's a Jungle Cruise in Tokyo and one in Hong Kong. So of all those places, you might have only had fifteen or 20,000 people in the history of Disney, in the history of the world, who have been doing that job. <laughs> okay. it's, it's a relatively small group of people who have had that experience. But you have millions and millions of people who they've touched. I, I did the math on my five years or so at, at, Dis, at the Jungle Cruise. And I figured that between taking boats out into the river or entertaining people, that it was about a million trips or interactions a year for a a 40-hour-a-week job. So I don't know that there's a lot of other careers or jobs where you could interact with a million people a year. You know, if you're at a retail job somewhere, you're going to interact with, you know, a couple couple thousand people a year, 10,000, whatever it is. But to be able to have a million interactions a year is astounding. Yeah, and that's a lot right. a lot of those people have a thirst for understanding what it's like to work at Disneyland because not everyone can do it. So what the podcast really is there for the the interviews are there for is it's to take the people who work there and show them a sense of camaraderie show them what other people have been through, remind them of some funny stories. And people who were there 30 or 40 years ago who have memories that are better than mine from five years ago. <laughs> but they, they remember names, they remember people, and they get to share those stories, and all those people get to hear those stories, people who they knew, and it re- reminds them of the times. It allows them to relive their their summer where they got to drive around in a boat shooting a fake gun at a fake hippos. <laughs> and there's there's just something very tangibly there as far as the emotion for people that they get to relive, even if it's just for the hour that I'm talking to them, they get to relive that time. And it's it's something that I think deserves to stay around. Well, yeah, I think you're right on every bit of that. I don't think I ever quite thought of it that way. But. Well, it, well, and it's, you know, nostalgia has taken over our, our culture where we we have movies that are based on other movies or movies that, you know, we, we, we'd rather remake something in the movie theater that was a surefire hit because we have this sense of nostalgia about the things that we grew up with or the things that we um, that we enjoyed. And... At the root of it, Disneyland was a perfect vehicle to create nostalgia. Because yeah, that's it, for sure. It becomes an experience that when you're 8 or 10 or 20, whatever your age is, the first time you go there, I don't care how old you are, you remember the first time you were at Disneyland. And it's something that people want to, to hear and relive. And 
you know, I I would love to say that an original story or an original they're always great, but people love the class. Why it's why uh, Grimm's fairy tales or you know any of the the old stories stay around is because they they touch something inherently in who we are. Yeah, yeah. and Disneyland does that too. It touches that part that makes you feel like a child regardless of your age. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, I I absolutely appreciate the time. Oh, well. Uh, you know, this I, is... I enjoyed doing it.